0: We're right in the middle of our series on the life of Peter. And Peter and the rest of the disciples have just had celebrated the Passover dinner with Jesus. Uh, We're picking up right where we left off last week. And uh, that was when, during the dinner, Jesus stood up and washed his disciples' feet. And, And when he did that, Jesus made an ominous prediction. He said, one of you, one of the 12, is going to betray me. Now, this is not the first time the disciples have heard Jesus make an ominous prediction like this. He's, several times, he's predicted his own death. He's predicted his own resurrection. He's predicted his own betrayal, and every time he does, you just never get the sense that the disciples really understood what Jesus was talking about. In fact, you wonder if they really even believe uh, that this thing is true, but this is the night. I mean, this is the night where the pre-eternal plans of God for the redemption of his people begin to unfold before them in staggering fashion, and along the way, We're given insights, deep insights, into the souls of the people that are with Jesus and even into the soul of Jesus himself. And so we're picking up right at the end of dinner, which they ended with a hymn that they sung together. Let's look together. This is Mark chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 26 through 50. Hear the word of the Lord. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, You will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But... Let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, this passage takes courage to read. And so I pray that you would give us the courage to hear it and lean into it and learn from it. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me to serve your people well to be gentle with them, just as you are gentle with us. I pray that you would help me to name what you would have me name and to apply grace. I pray that you would help me to speak in fidelity with your word and to honor you with every word I say. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So not long ago, I came across an interesting list. It was a list of 33 New Year's resolutions written down by Woody Guthrie. (laughs) And if you're not familiar with that name, uh, Woody Guthrie was one of the famous folk uh, singer-songwriters in the mid-1900s. Before there was Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash, there was Woody Guthrie. And when you look at this list, you get a really interesting insight into the man that he was, or at least the man that he aspired to be. He wrote these down in 1942... And he called them his New Year's rulings. And when you look at this list, you get a sense for, that he was very concerned with his own uh, personal hygiene. He uh, vowed that he was going to wash teeth, if any. That he would take baths. We're all thankful for that. That he would wear clean clothes. All of those on his list. He also had a concern for his own work ethic. He said he wanted to write a song every day. And to avoid wasting time and to work more and better, his very last resolution was that he would wake up and fight. And you also got a sense that there were people in his life that he loved. And he listed names of people that he wanted to love more and better. It was really sweet and, uh, and included a, a, a healthy dose of self-effacing sense of humor And however you feel about New Year's resolutions, whether you do them or not, they at least do that. They at least provide really interesting, penetrating insights into the people that we are or the people that we aspire to be. And they at least require a certain measure of courage because they always reveal to us how often and often how quickly The most earnest convictions are prone to fail. And when we look at this passage, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at men of vigilance and of earnest conviction. Men, and Peter in particular, men who had stood by Jesus already through very hard times, at great personal cost to themselves, fall in completely predictable and even understandable ways. I don't think it's hard to be sympathetic with Peter in these passages, because each of his failures are our failures too. But that's not all we see in this passage. We see that this raw honesty about Peter is also matched by raw honesty about who Jesus is. And when we look at this passage, one of the things we see is Jesus succeeding, even prevailing, precisely in the places where Peter failed. And so there are three scenes here. And each one is really hard on Peter. Um, But we're going to examine each scene and look at how Peter failed and talk about Jesus's grace over and even in spite of these failures. So here are these three points. Three failures in a row. Here we go. Takes courage. First, we're going to look at how he was blinded by pride. And then we're going to look at how he was lethargic in love. And then we'll talk about how he was impulsive in his reactions. Okay. And then we'll examine Jesus's grace applying to each one of those. First, blinded by pride. After dinner, they all take a walk. They're moving along to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a nighttime stroll. And they're talking and walking together. When Jesus makes another one of these ominous predictions, you see it in verse 27. He said, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now here, Jesus is just simply quoting a prophecy out of Zechariah and he's giving the disciples a heads up. He's saying, hey, this is what's before us. This is what's about to go down. And as far as I can tell, Peter's not really being singled out in this passage, but he receives this as a stinging rebuke. There's more than a hint of pride in his words when he says, they might fall away, but I will not. And then Jesus begins to then give details of what Peter's denial of who Jesus is uh, will look like. He says, before the rooster crows twice, you will have denied me three times. Now, just imagine that you're Peter in this passage for a second. Have any of Jesus's words that you've heard not yet come to pass? And Jesus is getting weirdly specific, isn't he? He's even using numbers. The rooster's going to crow twice. You're going to deny me three times. Is there a chance that Jesus might know what he's talking about? But Peter in his pride really digs in. He says, even if it means my own death, I will not deny you. And I think the most difficult part of this whole scene is that Peter seems to have completely missed an important promise that, that Jesus included in, in uh, everything he said. He said, but after all of that, after all that happens, after the shepherd is struck and the sheep scattered, I will be raised up and I will go before you to Galilee. Now that word go before, that's, that doesn't simply mean that I'm going to get to Galilee before you and then we're going to meet up there. What is intended to communicate is that Jesus will be in Galilee and there he will resume his rightful place as their shepherd to guide them and protect them and to lead them. And so one of the things he's saying that he's saying, even though all that will happen, even though you will abandon me, Jesus is saying, I will never abandon you. And I think these are words that Peter needed to hear. There is a dark night of the soul before Peter. And I'm not sure he ever heard those words. And it turns out that Jesus knew Peter better than Peter did. That Peter will, in fact, deny Jesus three times for all kinds of reasons. Reasons that are really understandable. He was afraid. He was watching his best friends suffer. He was alone. And Peter needed to remember these words. And as the story goes, the next morning the rooster crows twice, and Jesus and Peter lock eyes from a distance. And Peter becomes completely undone. That in his pride, he was blinded from the comfort that Jesus was giving him in those moments that even though Peter denied Jesus, Jesus was telling him that he would never deny Peter. He was blinded by pride. Next, we see that he was lethargic in love. When they arrived in Gethsemane, Jesus uh, makes two requests. The first is that he walks in and he says to his disciples to sit and pray. And then he goes a little further with his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And he says, sit and watch. And so he makes two requests to his disciples. Both times he's, he's, saying, he's asking something of them that requires a, a, a level of vigilant attentiveness or watchfulness on their part. Um, and all this is because in this passage, we see Jesus experiencing the deep sorrow that's before him. Now, Jesus always knew that these moments were coming. That in a lot of ways, this is why Jesus is here. He came to participate in this, he always knew it's coming, but now he's face to face with it. Uh, verse 33 says that he was greatly distressed and troubled. The description of Jesus is an acute, intense experience of emotional distress. Kent Hughes calls this a stress of cosmic dimensions. So much so that he told his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. And Luke tells us that this is the moment that Jesus began sweating blood. Why? Why is Jesus experiencing so much pain because he is about to experience something you and I will never have to. Look at his prayer, verse 36. Abba, intimacy. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. In the Hebrew scriptures, the cup is, is the metaphor for the wrath of God on all of human evil. It's used in some Psalms. You see it has a prominent place in both Ezekiel and in Isaiah. It's a description of the desolation of our evil ways. It's the wrath of God poured out in judgment on, on all the, those things that we deserve. It was a cup full of sin. And it was everything that Jesus was against. And in those moments, Jesus is staring into this cup. And experiencing a foretaste of what he's about to experience the next day. And all of our hope, of our future joy, of our freedom, lies in his willingness to drink this cup. And so we hang On Jesus' every words, when he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is announcing his willing submission to endure what we deserve and will never have to. The cosmic importance of this moment cannot be overstated. It's high drama. Bringing Jesus to the very end of himself. And what is Peter doing? He's sleeping. Three times, Jesus gets up and goes to Peter and says, What are you doing? Are you sleeping? And we can understand why Peter is really tired, can we not? It's a long day, and it's been a long night already. And they went for a walk, and now they're in a garden in the cool of the night. And we know what it's like when sleep comes over us. Maybe we're up late working or we're driving through the night or something like that. But we know what it's like to fight sleep when it's coming at us in this way. But everything in this story tells us that Peter would know the acute distress that his friend was under in those moments. This is not physical weariness. This is, for, for Peter, a failure to love. And it's striking to me that in the very moments that Jesus is staring at the cost of love, the cup that he will drink, Peter is failing to love. And he's unable to love. So he's lethargic in love. The next thing we see is that he's, he's, uh, he's impulsive in his reactions. Look at the threat that shows up on the scene in this moment, just like Jesus said would happen. Jesus is talking to Peter. Judas shows up with an armed guard. Verse 43 tells us that they came with swords and clubs and that they were dispatched by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, this likely would have been members of the temple guard showing up, and it would have been immediately evident that their intent was hostile. Perhaps they were looking for a fight. Maybe that's what they were looking for. Perhaps they showed up in force so so that there wouldn't be one. But Peter gives them one anyway. He reacts uh, instinctively in this moment. Verse 47, one of those who stood by drew his sword and uh, struck the servant of the high priest cutting off his ear. And the book of John tells us that the person who swung that sword was Peter. Now, why did Peter respond that way? Can you imagine all the pressure that Peter must have been under in those moments? I, I mean, I certainly can. He had just been reprimanded by Jesus for sleeping. Maybe he's overcompensating. Uh, he had just, maybe he's making good on his promise that he made earlier that he, was, uh, that he was willing to die alongside Jesus. Or maybe he was just trying to create confusion so people could leave. I, I, I don't know what he was doing. But it's hard not to look at this and think that this wasn't impulsive. Impulsive. It was like he had forgotten all that Jesus told him, not just about what was going to happen, but what had to happen. Jesus Jesus spoke about what he was going to go through as something that he had to go through in order to serve and redeem his people. He had forgotten all of that and tried to fix it all with violence. Calvin puts it this way. He said, Peter was acting as if there were no angels in heaven. And that by restlessness and excessive worry, he was putting out his hand and renouncing the providences of God at the same time. Do you think there's any chance that Jesus would have gone along with these guys if he didn't let him? This isn't the first time Jesus has been surrounded by people that wanted to kill him. Luke 4 is is a great example. He's in his own hometown of Nazareth. He's at the temple. And they're mad at him because he taught that he was indeed God. And they thought he was blaspheming. And blasphemy is a sin that's punishable by death. And so all of his hometown took him out to the cliffs to throw him over the cliff. And the passage says, they don't. It, the passage just, just says this. It says, he passed through their midst and went on his way. I don't know if he like, I don't know what, how that worked. But all we know is that Jesus has no problem handling a hostile crowd. And there's no way Jesus goes along with this armed guard unless he allows them to. And the truth is that Jesus knew this would happen. He said the hour was at hand. And he was prepared for this moment. And I can't imagine the feelings of betrayal that Jesus must have experienced when Judas came up to him, calls him a rabbi, kisses him on the cheek. That wound must have been deeply painful for him. But despite all of that, he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled and surrenders himself to go with him. Why? Because Jesus has surrendered his will to the Father's will. Because Jesus doesn't fix things by doing violence to others. Instead, what he does is he invites violence on himself. And in the face of Peter's impulsive reactions, we marvel at Jesus' willing surrender. And so what you have here are three failures, back to back to back. This passage is really, really hard on Peter. And it's explicit about Peter's failures. But what's wonderful about this is that we're watching Jesus prevail In precisely the same places that Peter failed. And that's what's so wonderful about the story of Jesus. Because the story of Jesus is is a story of the triumph of grace. Even in amidst our deep failures. And so what we do with this is that we understand that the gospel is for weak people. That Jesus came for the people who failed. It's not hard to sympathize with Peter in these stories. Uh, Like, I can imagine feeling insulted just the way Peter has. I gave years to you. I walked away from everything I thought I knew. I've suffered great personal costs to be with you. And now you're announcing out loud to everyone that I'm going to abandon you in your worst moments. We all know what what it feels like to hear rebuke when when a comfort is intended. And we all know what it's like to give in to our weaknesses when vigilance is required. And there's not a person in this room that hasn't reacted impulsively when threatened. All of these things are just understandable and even predictable. We could, In fact, I think we could put any one of us in these scenes replacing Peter. And I don't know if the story would change. And I just think that might be the point. That even when we're not enough, what we see is that Jesus is. And in fact, he came for us. Jesus said that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That Jesus gave himself for weak people who are prone to fail. And Jesus never gave up on Peter. And I need you to hear this. He doesn't give up on you either. I don't know about you, but every time I confess my sins, the same ones keep popping up over and over and over again. And it's discouraging. I'm looking for victory, right? But when we look to Jesus... We're looking at one who has triumphed over our sin. And in fact, Jesus gave himself for Peter and he gives himself for you too. And so great is the power of his grace that's won for us on the cross that, listen, we no longer have to crumble under the weight of our failures. Instead, what we can do is that we run to grace and we trust grace. And if that's true, if we really are convinced of the truth of grace, then we don't have to hide our failures either. Y'all, we are hiders. If we, it, 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 our souls are chocked full of the things that we're afraid that people might see. And if we looked into the window of our souls, we'd find hidden right behind all of our resolutions— those things that we're ashamed of. A friend of mine calls that a heavy backpack that we're just carrying around full of difficult things. And you know what the most amazing thing about Mark is? Most people agree that it was written by John Mark. And the early church tradition holds that John Mark wrote his gospel based on the testimonies of who? Simon Peter. And if that's true, and I believe it is, then what we have is Simon Peter revealing all of the ways he's blown it in order to show to you and to me all the ways that Jesus is enough, that he is more than enough. And what Simon Peter knows is that we can't make much of ourselves and Jesus at the same time. And so he's saying, don't look at me, but look at the one who saved me. And so he doesn't feel the need to hide. And listen, you and I don't need to either. And what is that? Well, I would call that freedom. The freedom from the baggage of the shame that we carry, the weight of the failures that we feel, We are freed from that. And so let me ask you a question. If we looked into the window of your own soul, what would we see? Let me pray. Oh Jesus, I pray that you would help us to believe this. That you would free us in the ways that you intend. Give us hearts full of gratefulness for what you faced. And give us joy for what beholds us. And I ask that as we turn to your meal, that you would nourish us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.